everyone. This is the Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime suspense and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I bring on my guest, I'll just remind you that the Crime Cafe has two ebooks for sale the nine book box set and the short story anthology. You can find the buy links for both on my website, debbiemack.com, under the Crime Cafe link. You can also get a free copy of either book if you become a Patreon supporter. You'll get that and much more if you support the podcast on Patreon, along with our eternal gratitude for doing so. But first, let me put in a good word for Blueberry Podcasting. I'm a Blueberry affiliate, but that's not the only reason I'm telling you this. I've been using Blueberry Podcasting as my hosting service for my podcast for years, and it's one of the best decisions I ever made. They give great customer service, you're in complete control of your own podcast, you can run it from your own website, and it just takes a lot of the work out of podcasting for me. I find for that reason that it's a company that I can get behind 100% and say, you should try this. Try Blueberry. It doesn't require a long-term contract, and it's just a great company, period. And it also has free technical support by email, video, and phone. So you can get a human being there. Isn't that nice? Hi, everyone. Uh, My guest today is a writer and editor whose work has appeared in many publications, including The Common, Rolling Stone, Guernica, The Paris Review Daily, and Electric Literature. He is also editor-in-chief of Crime Reads a very popular site for crime and thriller readers, including myself. I read it. Um, He is also the author of the recently released novel, An Honest Living. What a great title for a novel about a lawyer. Thank you very much. (laughs) And it's really a good book. I have to say that. It's my pleasure to introduce my guest, Dwyer Murphy. Hi, Dwyer. How are you doing today? (laughs) Great. Thank you for having me. This is a real treat. I love, you know, I love to talk crime and noir with real aficionados. That's my favorite. Oh, yeah. And movies. Oh, you mentioned movies in your book and I'm like, I'm in. (laughs) I love movies, especially those old noir movies. Um, So your book, uh, I have to say, really is like a love letter to New York City. (laughs) I'm really enjoying it as a crime reader and as a native New Yorker. So what prompted you to write the book? What inspired you? Well, it was something I had always wanted to do uh, and had tried many times over the years. For a long time, I was kind of writing, trying to write a very different type of book. I had a, a specific sort of very somber, serious literary novel that I felt like needed to get out of me and nobody in the world needed to read that including me and I sort of became disenchanted with the prospect at some point and then uh, at that point had already rediscovered my love of crime fiction and noir and my wife was um, my wife was pregnant with our first child and we were realizing how dramatically our lives were about to change and we had this sort of nervous habit that we would do. We'd stay up late watching old movies and we were watching Chinatown one night. And we have this strange habit where we kind of discuss different lawsuits the characters might bring against one another. It's just how we like to watch movies. So my wife is a lawyer and I'm a retired lawyer. And that's just how we how we amuse ourselves, I guess. 
And so we were talking through the plot to Chinatown and what kind of suits Jake Giddes and Evelyn Mulray and all these characters might bring against one another, talking about these old common law torts and things. And it suddenly occurred to me that like, this could be the beginning of a, a very bizarre sort of crime novel. And the next morning I, I started the first chapter and it's more or less intact in the book as is. And that, that became the novel. Oh my gosh. That sounds like almost basis for a really cool podcast when you get down to it. <laughs> Want to do one? Uh... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I do. I, I may I be like serious. That way. It's like a very strange, engaging way to watch a movie. And it's just it this is. little hobby that we kind of came up with. And, you know, Chinatown wasn't the, the only one, but that was one that we kind of kept returning to for some reason it gave us comfort i think that it's probably a bizarre thing to say that when you're you know expecting your first child and can't sleep and you're staying up late to watch chinatown as a comfort but for some reason it, it really was for us there's something about the rhythms and the textures of that kind of movie which you know itself is you know it's a neo-noir it's sort of looking back on another era trying to recapture something from a, a lost period Exactly. Yeah. And there's a comfort in that and in, in kind of going to those familiar tropes. Right. And I think, you know, it made some sense to me to be, you know, I wanted to write up an actual private eye novel. I love private eye novels, but it didn't seem so obvious to me how you would write a relatively contemporary one. This is set in 2005, 2006, Brooklyn how you would write a contemporary version of that, because I just don't know that many practicing PIs. There's a few out there and I've worked with a few when I was a lawyer, but you know, it's not the same kind of profession that maybe it once was, but it occurred to me that a, a washed out corporate lawyer, somebody who was kind of doing neighborhood jobs and piecing together cases could act sort of in the same way, uh, formalistically that a, a traditional private eye might act in a, in a fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I also write about a lawyer who solves mysteries. So <laughs> yeah, she's it's still practicing thing, law. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, because it's, you know, they, a lawyer can gain entry into rooms that a lot of people could not. And, you know, they're invited into dens of corruption in a way that most people exactly. aren't. So it gives this plausible excuse to have somebody walk in the door and be allowed into other people's confidences immediately. Exactly. Right. Yes. Um, so when, why did you decide to give up practicing law? And um, was that difficult for you? Was it a no, difficult it was the decision? thing in the world to, to quit <laughs> being a lawyer. I, the version of the law, I think I had probably, like a lot of people, been influenced by a lot of movies and books growing up and believed I was going to be, you know, peacocking around in a courtroom, convincing jurors, you know, <laughs> fighting for the side of justice, and then, um, you know, accumulated just a mountain of school debt going to a tremendously expensive law school, and the only job that could allow me to climb that mountain of debt was to work in corporate law in midtown Manhattan and to be working for, you know, insurance companies and doing a lot of presentations to boardrooms and private equity funds. And it was not the kind of law that was to me personally, emotionally satisfying in any way. And I'd always yes. want to kind of lead a more literary life. And so as soon as I was able to 
get out of that debt and put a little money together. And with the support of my very understanding wife who encouraged me, I was able to, you know, very gleefully uh, liberate myself from the profession. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I hear you loud and clear as far as like the supportive spouse part too. <laughs> I mean, it helps an awful lot. Um, it does. And there's always, you know, I, I sort of went through a period when I first left the law where I just, I wanted nothing to do with it. I couldn't stand the idea of it. And then, you know, a few years go by and you remember some of the things that you loved. And to be honest, you know, it's a, an extremely formative experience going through law school and practicing. It rewires your brain in a lot of ways. And I think I, it took some years for me to understand that there were parts of the profession that were indelible and had you know I I can't escape and don't necessarily want to and I tried to put some of that into the book as well because my character while acting as a private eye is sort of you know he is a lawyer and has uh, approached his life in a in a lawyerly way at least I say that but you know his version of a lawyerly way is to just go out and walk the streets and smoke a joint and meet some friends in a bar but you know always just kind of a Talmudic reasoning and sitting across somebody from a di- at a diner working through problems. The, those are the things I enjoy, the conversational aspects of the law. Yeah. And all the problem solving stuff. You're always thinking right. things through, trying to and be it's, rational. It's a very, you can't help it, I think. Like once you've had that training, you, you can never quite get rid of it, I suppose. That's it. It, it molds your brain. Turns your gray gray matter, you know, what was it that Hausman said in that movie? Something about turning your the mush in your head into a functioning legal brain or something. I don't know. Right. I often paper chase. I I do feel like sometimes I've been told that my conversational style is somewhat like a deposition because I really (laughs) like long conversations and I like asking probing questions in slightly different ways and it sometimes can seem like I just don't want to talk about myself I just keep asking question after question but that just, it's just like it's the way I like to have a conversation with somebody and yeah you know from you know you're you're a good interviewer and I think that that's something you get so I, I've, I've been accused from time to time of you know running a, a dinner party table like a deposition but I, I find it fun I don't know if other people do <laughs> That's funny. Um, how did you get involved with Crime Reads? Well, originally, it was, I was writing a lot of sort of literary profiles and journalism and writing for the website LitHub. And we had this idea, we were looking to kind of expand LitHub, which had become at that time sort of surprisingly and wildly popular and just kind of reaching millions of people a month. And we were looking for new areas to branch out. I was hired originally as the sports editor. We had this idea that we were going to commission a lot of novelists to go off to like minor league baseball tryouts and write these sort of Plimpton-esque, you know, mid-century or Sports Illustrated style 5,000 word pieces about like curiosities from the world of sports. Mm-hmm. Quickly realized that that was not, you know, that those, those magazines had quit doing that kind of literary journalism for a reason and that maybe it wasn't so sustainable and decided that we instead were going to look to what our readers actually wanted rather than try to spoon feed them something else. And there was a huge crossover between people reading literary fiction and crime fiction, obviously, like those two areas, I think, bleed into one another and feed off of one another in a really interesting way. And 
you know, I, like I mentioned before, I was trying to sort of write a different kind of literary fiction at the time, but I was writing at this place called the Center for Fiction, uh, which is this amazing institution in New York. They're in Brooklyn now across from Band. for anybody who wants to check it out. They have a somewhat new building there and it's really just, just beautiful. But for a long time, for hundreds of years, they were on 47th Street in this great townhouse that was kind of nestled amongst the skyscrapers in the Diamond District. And they have this great library. I was writing there and kind of one day just couldn't stand what I was writing any longer. I really didn't like it. And I decided I was going to pick up a crime novel and just enjoy myself. And I ended up picking up Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress and spending mm-hmm. just eight hours gripped by it and decided great I was choice. going to then give myself an education in crime fiction and was able to do that. So when it came time at LitHub, when we decided that we were going to spin it off into this sort of crime fiction vertical, I was the crime fiction hand. And along with a couple of my colleagues in Molly audience, we were able to launch this new website. It was a nice, you know, piece of fortune for me. I get to spend all day reading crime novels. People don't quite believe that that's a job, but that's essentially it. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's really great. Um, Do you plan to write a sequel to your book? I do. Yeah. Um, So next summer there will be another novel out that is not a sequel to this one a standalone heist novel set in massachusetts on a beach town in the summer uh that's called stolen coast and that'll be out next summer and then hopefully if everything goes you know according to plan the summer after that there will be a sequel to an honest living where a couple of the characters go down to miami and i get to really indulge my elmore leonard fascination fully oh, cool. yeah more leonard to me is just you know the the perfect crime writer and somebody i come back to all the time and so the the prospect of sending a couple of characters down to miami to act out a sort of bizarre literary mystery was was too good to to give up elmore leonard is like a god to me <laughs> yeah I him think, uh, and uh kenneth millar um you know ross mcdonald uh, yeah, well, Ross McDonald was probably the person I was reading the most when I started in Honest Living. I was reading a lot of Ross McDonald and Margaret Millar, actually. So me too. A, a married couple, of course, you know, writing very different types of mysteries, but both really refined Excellent. and elegant and interesting in their own ways. And it, actually, I think the fact that they were married to authors writing in the same space in such dramatically different ways kind of influenced a little bit of the plot of an honest living as well and worked its way into some of what the characters get up to in the relationships there as well but the Lou Archer novels to me I mean I love Chandler and Hammett but I I think when I come back to the sort of perfect private eye novel I usually come back to a Ross McDonald, Lou Archer novel, and that that sort of Santa Teresa stuff that it just really hits me where I live. Yeah, me too. Ross McDonald seems to me has always struck me as a person who could write like Chandler, but make real sense of it, as opposed to Chandler, yeah. who just didn't really care about plot that much, so much as the style. <laughs> Which I really respect, I gotta I say. I love that. I, I, <laughs> I know do. what you mean. And with McDonald, I think McDonald is just, Ross McDonald is just as stylized, but it's a really refined, uh, you know, poured over, boiled down, however you want to characterize it, style that you get the impression that he maybe has some of those same, you know, wild, uproarious uh, 
metaphors and poetry in him that Chandler lets out, but that he has kind of packed it down into a more condensed form or denied it to himself. It's, it's a really interesting style, but I think sometimes he gets the rap as being like, you know, Chandler, but without the poetry. And I would say that, you know, if anything, he maybe has more of that poetry in his work. And I, I, I love it for that reason. You know? I would agree with you there. I, I think he was every bit the stylist. Um, with your interest in movies, have you ever considered writing screenplays? Uh, I think that probably that's in the near future, but nothing I can discuss uh, as of the moment, but I, I do love movies and obviously wanted to work them in to this novel because to me, like the, the version of New York that I moved to in my early twenties was a city full of movie theaters. And like, that's a large part of why I wanted to go. I think people forget that if you wanted to see good movies, you know, art house, independent foreign films, or just interesting repertories, you needed to be in a place that was showing them all the time. And there was no place like it, but in New York, you know, there was a movie theater on every couple of blocks. You could find a great old movie theater showing a different repertory and then go to the diner afterwards and talk about it with your friends. So that was, a version of New York that was still around in the time that I set the novel in 2005. And we took a lot of pains in working through the plot and the timing, my editor and I making sure that, for example, in 2006, the characters could go see a particular screening of a Melville movie that was showing at the film form. And we wanted to get that stuff right because it might seem like, you know, detail or slightly beside the point, but I think it does capture the atmosphere of that city at that time and the people who were living there for, you know, for reasons of deep appreciation for movies. Mm -hmm. And um, so I would assume then you did quite a bit of research on that time period. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, I was around in New York during that time, but it was fun to go back and read all of like, you know, go find archival stuff from the village voice or time out new york and find out exactly what was going on uh, as opposed to just my sort of uh, nostalgic version of what my life was like when i was in my early and mid 20s kind of going around new york the character is a little bit older than i was at that time but otherwise shares a lot of my my background and you know my name and attributes and professional experiences but i wanted to you know go to the record and make sure that that stuff, what was happening was kind of captured on the page. And also there's a large plot that involves uh, the trade in rare books, a specific type of rare book, a true crime, what's called trial pamphlets. Lawyers are typically familiar with them, but I don't know how familiar other people are. Uh, but, you know, like sort of salacious accounts, mostly from the 19th century, cheaply printed and widely distributed salacious accounts of crimes confessions of murderers and like people would, you know reporters would go around and try to capture the full story of an arrest trial conviction execution of a notorious criminal and then put out their version of it it was usually wildly inaccurate but kind of had a certain magic of its own and you know, these <laughs> things mostly fell apart and were lost to time because that's what they were designed to do but in new york you can go to some of the law libraries, but especially the New York Historical Society up on Central Park West has in a, a really beautiful building that feels like you're stepping out of Edith Wharton's New York. You can go in there and into the reading room and the really, these really informed, incredibly helpful librarians will bring you these 
these little pamphlets and it feels like holding on to time. It feels like a walk through history. It's a really invigorating, inspiring experience. So if anybody's able to get to the New York Historical Society to check these out, I really recommend it, especially crime lovers. It's an, it's a, you know, it's a memorable experience. It sounds awesome. Um, let's see. What would be your favorite film noir or neo-noir movie? Probably The Long Goodbye, uh, Altman's adaptation of Chandler with Elliot Gould. I think uh, I've just been thinking and writing about it recently, so maybe it's just at the very front of my mind, but I think that that probably captures everything I love about crime fiction in one movie where it's, you know, it's Chandler's best book, his best story, I think, in my opinion. And it has, you know, Lee Brackett's screenplay, which is, working with Chandler again after decades away and she worked with John Houston or Howard Hawks earlier thinking John Houston because of Chinatown and it's just got this great ambient storytelling because that's all of Altman right everybody's talking all the time there's conversations swirling everywhere and Marlowe is kind of lost in it and also muttering to himself about cat food it's this really like <laughs> you know beautiful story that just has all this ambient conversation like I said I like I like conversation the most probably when it comes to literature crime fiction anything so I guess to me an ultimate version of any type of crime novel is perfect. I like if I could somehow, you know, I don't, Altman never did an Elmore Leonard adaptation, right? But that, that to me would be the sort of perfect meeting of material and adapter. Yeah. I like Altman's style, the way he has people cross talking and stuff right. going on at the same time. It, it is, it, it is a very unique style for him. And, and I think it stuff. works well with crime fiction too. I know that's why I mentioned Elmore Leonard because I, I've got this story in my head that Leonard tells about how he writes his characters and he writes a character and then decides, finds out whether they can talk, whether they can tell a good story. And if they can, if they can hold up their end of a conversation, he gives them some more story and more things to do. And if they can't, he just kills them. They're off the page. They're done. So you have to be able to talk to keep, to earn your keep in an, in an Elmore Leonard novel. And I think that that works really well with, I mean, in a Robert Altman film, like you better be able to talk if you're going to, if you're going to be on screen, you know, <laughs> the camera's going to be passing by quickly, but you've got, you've got maybe 10 seconds to, to say your piece. Uh, so I have to ask, because I always ask this of lawyers, um, do you ever find yourself cringing at the depiction of lawyers on TV and saying, oh, that would never happen or, oh, geez, that's awful or. Yeah, really? you have to suppress it, right? Really, so that, really? Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. So that people can tolerate watching things with you. I suppose it's easier because my wife is a lawyer as well. Although she was trained originally in Venezuela, and that's, you know, not the common law, but a civil law system. And so it's quite different. So it's kind of fun to watch legal things with her and we can discuss, uh, you know, how they would be treated differently in those different structures of jurisprudence. But yeah, I... I probably am that obnoxious lawyer watching things, especially, I, you know, with my very limited, <laughs> I did five or six years as a litigator and I was, I clerked uh, in federal court in the SDNY downtown. And that was probably my most day-to-day -day exposure to being in the courtroom. And so as a result, I have this smug ignorance about how everything in a courtroom works <laughs> in the back end of things right and so 
yeah, I'm probably that insufferable prick who, uh, who keeps calling out the the, in, the legal inconsistencies in a book <laughs> or something with, you know, just revealing my own ignorance, really. I have just enough experience with it to cringe at, at some yep. of it and just go, no. I know I didn't do a lot of litigation, but no. Are you ever going right. to ask a question? Are you making a speech? Oh, no, that kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, it's it's true that you can't help it once you've had once you've had that professional experience. We do it too. Like we're raising objections as we're watching. This. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just doing that, but you can't help it. It's it's a thing. Yeah, it's just a habit, I guess. Um, <laughs> What would what advice would you give to someone who's interested in writing for a living? I think to be patient, maybe at the beginning that I've been thinking about this, I guess, recently, just because it took me a long time to get to the point where I had a novel that I felt was worth a story that was worth telling and a novel that was worth writing. And it took a lot of practice and training and just writing and writing and writing and during that time I probably felt constantly impatient to simply be an author and have something published and out in the world and now you know I've done it and I guess that that's good but it doesn't actually when you get to that point it doesn't really feel like anything significantly different and yet it was something I was tremendously impatient for and beat myself up about for years that I hadn't done it yet. So I think maybe I would just urge patience on people out there and to give themselves as much time as it takes for the, the right story to come along. That's excellent advice, actually. And I wish more people followed it. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, hard when you're in the middle of it. You just want to get going and you, you know, you've yes. dreamt of being an author and you want it to just to happen, but it takes some time and, you know, make sure that the story is worth it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Be respectful of your reader. Give them your best. Exactly. Um, So um, is there anything else you'd like to add before we finish up? Hmm. So when you're reading the the lawyerly stuff in this book, does it hold up okay? There's not much courtroom stuff, so I, now I want to know. Which is a relief to other, me, frankly. No, yeah. <laughs> um, no this guy thinks some... like a lawyer, acts like a lawyer. Um, I, I've related with it anyway. No terrible blunders was... then. That's what I'm afraid of. I haven't had the heart to ask some of my lawyer friends whether it just seems too preposterous. Although most of my, you know, most of his brushes, brushes with the law are just sort of, passing the associates smoking outside of their corporate gravestones in midtown at 4 p.m. looking ahead to the long night ahead he's just that's you know he's not in a courtroom too often so I suppose I didn't go through those pitfalls but I I just want to make sure that it feels like you know the the very special disillusionment that a lawyer has oh I understand completely because I'm always fearful of getting details like that wrong because right. I had, like I said, very limited experience in terms of trials. I had more appellate experience than trial experience. Right. But um, in any case, um, yeah, the, you got to sweat those details because they'll call you on it. Um, I know. 
Yeah. So I'm sure anyway. I've got some lawyers out there ready to write me carefully worded. No, because if there's one thing we're good at as lawyers, it's to write those careful notes afterwards. So I'm sure. Oh I'll God, be yes. <laughs> I have had to bite my tongue more times than you. I can count. <laughs> I really I tried to rein it in. Yeah. But I, I think New Yorkers and lawyers are naturally sarcastic people. That's all there is to it. <laughs> Exactly. So I'm. And when I'm we see something that we think is BS, we're we're crying bullshit on it. <laughs> exactly. Because that's God what you love about the city, you know, right? That's, you uh, got that's it wrong. <laughs> but there's too much wrong out there to try to correct. So I've, you know, it's like, exactly. no way am I going to, you know, take that on. Anyway, I'm just so glad that we had the chance to talk and that you were here today. Thank you so much for being here and telling us about your book. And Thank you for writing. having me. This is a real treat. It was wonderful. And um, on that note, I will just say uh, thank you for listening. Um, don't forget that uh, you can leave a review, and I would appreciate it if you did, if you enjoyed this episode. Also, um, Tell your friends, your family, everybody you know about it. Um, in addition, we have a Patreon page if you would like to support us on Patreon. We offer bonus episodes, uh, ad-free episodes, and more if you join us on Patreon. Uh, be a supporter. So again, thanks for listening. And our next guest will be Lee Matthew Goldberg, an author and screenwriter with other irons in the fire so it's going to be interesting so that should uh, be interesting like i said and in the meantime take care stay cool and happy reading mm -hmm.